You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Good morning, or afternoon or evening, depending on where you are. Welcome to this event, the scramble for a vaccine and the COVAX facility. I'm J. Stephen Morrison, Senior Vice President here at CSIS in Washington, DC, where I direct our Global Health Policy Center. This event today is part of the ongoing work of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. We established that commission in 2018. It is extending its work in the midst of the pandemic through the fall of 2022. These issues we'll be treating today are central and vital to the work that we are undertaking. Peggy Hamburg, one of our commissioners, will be presiding today. She recently stepped down as Foreign Secretary of the National Academy of Medicine, the immediate past chair and president of the American Association for Advancement of Science, and former FDA commissioner and former commissioner of health in the city of New York. We published last week an analysis that is a companion to this event. That analysis is a CSIS brief. Is it possible to avert chaos in the vaccine scramble? It's available at CSIS.org. This event grows out of that work. The proposition there is that nationalism dominates the scramble for vaccines. And there's a certain high risk that low income countries, lower middle income countries will be left out and subject to great delay and uncertainty and that this will have destabilizing consequences. We have in our paper examined Operation Warp Speed, examined what the Chinese are up to and the Europeans are up to and put a focus on a very promising new initiative that we'll hear about in a moment, the uh, ACT Accelerator and within that, the COVAX facility for vaccines led by Gavi and CEPI. Timing for this event is quite important as Congress weighs new COVID funding in the Senate Republican bill. We'll hear later there's money in that for Gavi for procurement and distribution. Uh, If that step were to be taken, it would be a big step forward in terms of broadening the United States approach. We are arguing in that work for such a broadening that would blend nationalism in the US approach with a more aggressive and active internationalism. Our other speakers today, Nikolai Gilbert, president and CEO of PATH based in Seattle. And Nikolai kindly has agreed to join our commission. His predecessor, Steve Davis, was a very active member of the commission. Nikolai, we're delighted you've joined the commission and thank you so much. We're joined by Kendall Hoyt, Assistant Professor in the Dartmouth University School of Medicine. We're also joined by Nicole Lurie, Strategic Advisor to the CEO at the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, CEPI as it's called. She's the former Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response at Health and Human Services Department. I'm gonna turn the floor over uh, to Peggy Hamburg to lead this conversation. Thank you all. Well, thank you, Steve. This is a critical time to be focused on vaccines. I think it's fair to say that the whole world is very uh, actively waiting and hoping um, for a vaccine or vaccines to be developed. This is seen as a critical measure of protection against what has proven to be a devastating disease, COVID-19. And there's a lot of reason for optimism, but there also are some real concerns. Certainly, uh, 
the scientific community has galvanized in unprecedented ways working across uh, sectors and across borders in order to try to develop candidate vaccines and test them. And that has been extraordinary. On the other hand, we recognize that this is a global pandemic and that in order to really uh, combat and control a global pandemic, we need to ensure that people around the world have access to critical uh, public health tools, importantly, vaccine, yet there's an enormous um, sense of, of both responsibility and nationalism around developing vaccines and access to vaccines that could limit availability as vaccines certainly are hard to develop uh, and get them through the whole research process and uh, difficult to manufacture. And for a global response, we will need um, literally billions and billions of doses. So we're gonna be talking about the opportunities and the challenges. And we're gonna be talking um, in particular about an innovative new model to try to address the issues around how to encourage uh, accelerated research and development of important uh, vaccine candidates, but also how they can be um, produced and distributed in ways uh, that take an international perspective uh, and a perspective of, of equity and uh, a public health driven distribution approach. So we're gonna be talking a lot about the COVAX COVAX is the vaccine pillar of something called the ACT Accelerator, which seeks to speed up development, production, and equitable access to diagnostics, therapeutics, and vaccines, three um, elements of the necessary tools for an effective medical and public health response. This was launched in April, and it was uh, really launched uh, as a collaboration of both governments, importantly, including the European Union and their president, um, but also philanthropy and not-for-profit organizations coming together, recognizing this critical need uh, as this global pandemic was unfolding. As I said, COVAX represents the vaccine pillar of this um, ACT Accelerator, and it's co-led by an organization that you just heard about, um, CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovation, which was started actually after the Ebola outbreak uh, in order to try to do research and development for vaccines against certain pathogens of pandemic potential. The foresight of that is now quite appreciated. Um, and it's also co-led by Gavi, the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization. So the COVAX facility is actually administered by Gavi, which now has a fairly long history of procurement and distribution of vaccines. And it, it, it will be, the COVAX facility is seen as a marketplace through which many countries, rich and poor, can have access to a diversified and actively managed portfolio of vaccines. The poorest countries need something like this because they would have no way to actually develop or purchase 
vaccines for their country's needs, but high and middle income economies can also invest directly in COVAX to procure vaccines for their own populations. And we'll talk later about why that may be highly desirable. Then there's also the uh, Gavi COFAX advanced market commitment aspect of this enterprise. And that's very uh, important in terms of the ability through donor financing to secure COVID-19 doses, um, make the commitment for purchase ahead of time, and that will help to ensure the access for a, a very large number of low and middle income uh, countries. The goal is to deliver 2 billion doses of COVID-19 vaccine by the end of 2021. Now this of course depends on the successful development, approval, and manufacture of vaccines, another huge challenge. And just lastly, I wanna mention before we turn to the panel, the issues of funding, because all of this sounds good, but it requires the resources, importantly dollar resources, although human resources and political commitment as well, to really realize the important goals. And an estimated 18.1 billion is needed for COVAX to deliver on these goals. And um, the advanced manufacturing commitment needs about 2 billion um, through 2021. And to date has raised 600 million and CEPI needs about 2 billion for initial field trials and has raised two thirds. We do need to see broader commitment of, of countries. So far, um, there are a large number of countries that have indicated uh, uh, interest in committing, but we need uh, those countries to truly step up to the plate and make those commitments firm. And sadly, the United States has not participated in any of the initial launch meetings, planning meetings, um, or made any active commitment. Currently on the Hill, there is consideration of monies to support international programs, including um, uh, money for, for Gavi and potentially money for CEPI. And this is a critical time uh, to advance those efforts. So I will uh, now turn to the panelists and I'll start with um, Nicole Lurie um, uh, to, to really start the discussion. She, as you've heard, has a long history of working in the realm of public health preparedness and responding to epidemics and pandemics, including H1N1, Ebola, Zika, and uh, now COVID-19, and has worked for the US government. And I, I, I was hoping, Nikki, you could sort of lay out for us a little bit why this initiative is, is so important and why it is in fact in the US national interest, despite all of the investments the US is currently making in its own vaccine development programs for COVID, so-called Operation Warp Speed, but why is it also of value for the US to um, uh, invest and commit to a program like COVAX? Thanks for the question. I think what's important to remember, and I think we hear this a lot, that nobody wins this race unless everybody wins, that we are not safe until everyone is safe. But I think from the US perspective, there are a couple of really important components. It is obviously in our own interest to be sure, not only that there are safe and effective vaccines for Americans, but that there are safe and effective vaccines for the rest of the world so that we can 
end this pandemic. We're seeing right now what we call a lot of vaccine nationalism, understanding lots of countries are taking care of their own needs, which they need to. And we're seeing countries make all kinds of bilateral deals to get vaccine. That's only gonna drive up the price of vaccine for everyone. The US is invested in a number of candidates. We are optimistic. We don't know if they're gonna be successful. We don't know if they're gonna generate enough doses. And so this idea of the US supporting and buying into a larger pool of candidates so that it hedges its bets, it sees COVAX in some sense as an insurance policy for itself makes really, really good sense. And then finally, just thinking about our own economic recovery. Our economy can't recover just by vaccinating Americans. Our economy is going to need markets around the world to be strong and functional for our own economy to recover. And that means vaccinating people around the world, I'm probably starting with a first tier of frontline workers. And I'll turn now to, to Kendall Hoyt, who has been working um, to sort of study some of the issues around models of, of uh, collaboration, but also thinking about when the, the market doesn't always work to address a critical um, uh, public health or, or global need. And why would a model like this be necessary? Why can't the free market just recognize these needs? Yeah, and that's a very good question. Demand is high, right? The market does work. This is not a market failure. Competition is sort of a time-honored way to generate innovation. You know, but in this case, it might actually hinder efforts to develop a COVID vaccine um, and to make it equitably available. Um, so in a free market, vaccines are gonna go to the highest bidder and there's limited supply early on. We did a model of the market and it shows that if you allow free market forces to operate, it's gonna cost 13 times more than if we were to do a, a collective procurement under a global mechanism such as COVAX. So cost, it's also going to reduce access to the vaccines that are available if you do it through these bilateral deals. COVAX will allow this equitable distribution you know, on the basis of need and vulnerability as opposed to nationality and ability to pay. Right? And as Nikki said, we all have a vested interest in ending chains of transmission as quickly as possible. Um, so it would get in the way of that. And furthermore, you know, allowing the free market to operate through these bilateral deals is going to create incentives for protectionist measures, export controls, things that will snarl supply chains and which will then hinder development and extend the amount of time that it takes for us to effectively roll out vaccines. So those are some reasons to consider. Thank you. And now turning to our European colleague, Claude Gilbert, PATH has a long history of forging partnerships across sectors and across borders um, with government, with philanthropy, with not-for-profit organizations, um, and the private sector. Uh, so that 
perspective clearly is important as we're thinking about how to shape and hopefully support the success of a novel entity like uh, COVAX. So I was hoping you might be able to speak a bit to um, the set of issues about how do you make partnerships work? Why is this partnership so critical now? And, um, and potentially you know, provide a little non-US perspective on um, vaccine uh, nationalism versus globalism. Thank you so much, Peggy, and it's a pleasure to, to be with you all today. Um, those are big questions that you that you raise, and I would say there, there are some good news, and this is a, obviously a, a great timing for, for having a discussion on this topic. I mean, since, since we become, became aware of, of COVID-19, there's been an unprecedented global collaboration in the R&D space in the scientific community. That is great. It has meant that R&D efforts have been able to be accelerated at an unprecedented scale. So that's really great news. This is why it's probably realistic that we will have a vaccine available in a short, uh, short time frame. Also, what we have seen in terms of, of partnerships and global collaboration is a way of breaking down the barriers between public and private sector. And we talked about the COVAX, we talked about ACT Accelerator, and all of these new uh, innovative approaches are actually built upon the foundation of private and public uh, partnerships, academic institutions, university, pharmaceutical companies, and so forth. So this is how we at PATH have been operating for the last 40 years. And we have seen how this is actually extremely effective and can help accelerate uh, development. And now, in a way, this needs to be proven at a completely unprecedented scale and with so many actors. So actually, we are seeing uh, new models. And I think this, this COVAX facility is, is a unique uh, approach, which is actually trying to also, you could say, pull in all the countries around the world, no matter they are low-income countries, high-income countries, everyone has a role to play in this uh, global effort to get a vaccine out that works, is safe, efficacious, and become available to all. But obviously, it's not only the science piece, it's also the manufacturing piece. For all these number of candidates of vaccines for those to be produced and manufactured up front we need to start that work now and it means that we need to you know use all the resources innovative approaches to really prepare that and provide the funding that um, that is needed for that effort and for the european perspective i know we talk about nationalism in the u.s context today well, I would say as a, as a Danish citizen and I'm seeing, sitting from here in Europe that nationalism has also, also been a part of the, of, of the response here in, in, in Europe. Obviously starting on protection equipment, who has the access to that? And then it went on. I mean, how do you make sure who should get access to, to the vaccines first? Now we see the, the European commissioner, uh, the head of the commission, Ursula von der Leyen, is, uh, is actually pushing hard and has been very helpful in pledging conferences to actually launch the facilities and giving their support on the European Union side. 
And the latest is that to counteract nationalism, that the EU is now negotiating on behalf of all member states with manufacturers and producers, which is a new approach. And they would have to deliver uh, on that approach. Otherwise, probably the, the governments and national governments are also going to maybe uh, turn towards a more nationalistic uh, approach, which I don't hope so. But COVAX is really a, a, a great uh, response uh, for, for the world in, in that sense. Thank you. You know, I, I almost wonder is, is nationalism even possible when it comes to vaccines or other areas of, um, of bioscience um, product innovation and development? Science is a global enterprise now, and the underlying work behind all of these vaccines has been, you know, I think, you know, very collaborative and very international. Also, so many of the companies really are, are multinational in terms of um, how they do their work, you know, labs in one place, manufacturing facilities somewhere else, uh, critical supplies coming from different countries, um, et cetera. And, um, and of course, studies have to be done where there are cases. While the US is not proud of its number of cases at the moment, it does mean that we have a lot of opportunity to do clinical trials. But in China, for example, because they have more successfully controlled this novel coronavirus, they're actually having to go to other countries to do their clinical trials. So there's just a lot of crossing of borders um, and benefits from collaboration, no matter what. So I'm, I'm sort of curious, you know, maybe I'll go back um, to Nikki first on this. Um, do, you, do you really think it, it would be possible for the US to just try to go it alone. Would we be where we are if China hadn't posted the genome in early January in terms of our ability to develop um, uh, important medical countermeasures? I'll just reflect that when I first got into this whole field, um, the world looked pretty different. There were lots of um, efforts at collaboration, particularly on the public health side, on the surveillance side between the US um, and other countries around the world. But from a scientific perspective, you know, the US scientific enterprise, um, particularly in bioscience was really the envy of the world. What I feel like we've seen over the time that I've been doing this work is that a lot of the world has caught up in so many ways. As you said, we've got lots of vaccine development and manufacturing going on in China. We've got vaccine development and manufacturing going on in Europe. We have lots and lots of interdependencies, but for those interdependencies to function, I think that the relationships have to be built on a basis of collaboration and trust. And the US is in a sort of precarious position right now um, because it's been choosing by and large to go it alone. Um, in a lot of different ways. And so I, my perspective as an American now working with a number of global organizations is that we are viewed with increasing amounts of skepticism about whether we can be trusted. I hope that we can, and certainly um, the scientific advancements that have been made both in the United States and across the world come from this whole area of global collaboration and science. 
But you also know when push comes to shove, sovereign leaders um, are under a lot of pressure to protect their own populations first. And it takes an enormous amount of leadership and skill and explaining to explain to one's citizens around the world that taking care of my citizens also involves taking care of citizens around the world. If this hasn't shown us that infectious diseases, no, no borders, um, none have. So on the one hand, we're all dependent on this collaboration to an incredible degree. On another hand, just as we've seen these sort of lockdowns and export controls and import bans um, with personal protective equipment and all kinds of supplies, and we've seen lots of border closures around the world, this kind of nationalism is still alive and well. And I think it's gonna really inhibit our ability to deal with this pandemic. And frankly, for the US to, to sort of continue to, to regain trust as a trusted international partner uh, going forward. And that's an issue that's a huge concern to me. Yeah. And Kendall, I know that you've done work on sort of trying to think about and frame vaccines as a global public good. And that is, I think, from my perspective as a public health professional, certainly true. But that's a, a hard uh, thing to communicate in, in many instances, especially in the context of a crisis like this where every country is, is trying to look after their own. What, can you tell us a little bit about the work you've done in that domain? Sure, um, but just to refer back to the first question a little bit about nationalism. Um, I would say that you know, our political instincts are not in sync with the practical realities of research and development in the globalized world today. So that problem is part of the answer, I think, to the global public goods problem. One of the things that I'd like to see, you know, it are you know, creating some of the institutions and frameworks that will make collaboration an easier political sell and um, sort of reduce some of the disincentives. I sort of envision something like a treaty that would come into force when there's a pandemic with a code of conduct you know, that nations would agree to, whether it's, you know, sharing samples and data in a timely fashion, coordinating on clinical trials, adopting harmonized protocols, or, um, you know, agreeing not to have export controls or price gouging. I mean, you could think of a whole range of things that we would all agree to upfront that would allow for a much more streamlined response, a much more rational response in the moment. Um, but, you know, in addition to that, there are other things that we can do, you know, it's sort of these viral spillover events are like, you know, greenhouse gas emissions, you know, and you need ways, all the tools and strategies to solve them collectively. COVAX actually is a very important economic piece. Uh, it's a tool that allows us to collaborate effectively and efficiently to pool our risk. Um, and you know, a lot of the building blocks of what we need are already there, you know, whether it's CEPI, um, whether it's Gavi, whether it's the WHO, and how they've all come together to create something like COVAX. So recognizing the value and the power of these institutions to create the institutional framework that we need to produce vaccines as global public goods and investing them as part of this larger project, I think is where we need to go. 
Well, certainly treaties are not easy to undertake, but but one could even imagine in the process of trying to think about what might be in a treaty, you could make a lot of important progress forward in sort of laying out all the different issues, many of which you just touched on, that can become barriers to effective uh, collaboration. I think that it would be unlikely that in the current state of politics in this country and probably many other that we could really forge such a treaty, right. but, but, but as an exercise, I could see it would have real value and, and getting away also from this um, either or mentality. And in fact, it's a sensible strategy as was touched on already um, because it, it allows you to distribute your, your risk and it allows you to diversify your portfolio, so to speak, because we don't know, um, you know which vaccine is gonna make it over the, fax- the finish line hopefully more than more than one. And I would agree. I think contracts are a step back from a treaty and yet enforceable, right? And it's sort of a more incremental way to, a lever for social change of this nature. And I think CEPI has been very forward thinking in this way. To just build on Kendall's comment for just a minute, part of the reason we're in this conundrum is because in all of our global pandemic preparedness, there are a number of things that we didn't necessarily anticipate. And again, as an American, you know, we, I appreciate very much the fact that the US government has this end-to-end financing system. It can pay for the basic science, it can pay for vaccine development, it can pay for the manufacturing, it can pay to buy doses and distribute it to its citizens, but the rest of the world isn't organized that way. Right, and to, there, as we got into vaccine development, we realized there was no entity to pay for the scale of manufacturing that needed to happen. There was no entity that could make an advanced market commitment to purchase doses so that the manufacturers would actually manufacture doses. And so that's really why COVAX and the facility came into being. We're sort of making that up as we go. But in the next pandemic, to Kendall's point, we can't be passing the tin cup raising money for these activities. We have to have a global system that lets this happen much more easily, much faster and with much more predictability. So now Nicola, you've been watching this from the perspective of what's happening in Europe. The European Union, as you noted, really has stepped up to the plate in terms of leadership. On the other hand, we're seeing some of the countries in Europe advancing bilateral agreements and and the EU creating its own vaccine uh, initiative as well. So lots of these different tensions coming out. Before I dive into the European situation, just a comment on the nationalism question that you that you raised because and the vaccine uh, trends that we have seen over the last couple of years. So There is a decreasing interest overall in vaccine before COVID-19 hit us. Actually, supply of vaccines to many diseases around the world that are affecting maybe Africa, Southeast Asia and others, there's been a declining trend in terms of interest. And that's obviously due to profitability as well for many um, private sector companies. So we were already on a a declining interest in terms of, of, of vaccine uh, capacity. Then uh, COVID-19 obviously uh, hit us all, and now we need to, you know, pick that, pick that up around the world. 
And my point in this is that the US market from a pharmaceutical or biotechnology perspective is the most profitable in the world, right? So it's a very interesting market for all major pharmaceutical companies in the world. So it's, it's very difficult when obviously the US administration are approaching you uh, to you know, get uh, access to, uh, to your products, in this case, uh, a vaccine. I still think that we need that collaboration, that collective mindset also coming more firmly out so that other, so governments around the world can see that it actually doesn't pay off to do these bilateral deals. On the, on the, European, uh, on the European question, I think we are, as we, as we talked about, there is, a, there is a solidarity now. So the money that is being provided for development assistance, and then there are the national you know, health authority ministries who are actually responsible for uh, purchasing uh, medicine and so on. And that's what is making this more complicated because you have two streams of funding. But I think the COVAX facility is actually designed well for that. So you have the availability for your own citizens, but then you can contribute via your development assistance to this facility. And I could imagine that this model could also work for the United States. So I think it's, it's, a, it's quite a great model, as I said, and Europe has shown that you can actually protect your citizens, but also be part of the, these international efforts. Thank you. Steve, you've been quiet. Looked like maybe you wanted to comment. Thank you. Well, I've been listening intently. This has been a terrific discussion. I have two points. Uh, the first on the whole question of diplomacy and treaties. Keep in mind, um, the dominant factor today is the clash between the United States and China, which is worsening. That clash, which is escalating, has paralyzed the UN Security Council. And it has it has uh, dominated to such an extent that we see a, with the exception of the of the uh, pledging conferences organized in in May and June, we see a void of high level diplomatic activity in this period, which is shocking and astonishing that you have a planetary crisis of health and economics and stability, and you do not have high level diplomacy at the level of state leadership. You can make the case that the United States has a legacy of leadership that it can re-embrace, that it's going to have surplus capacity in terms of production agreements. It is in its own self-interest to be able to hedge its bets, as Kendall and others have pointed out. The problem is how do you crack through and get, get some initial action that reaches outside of the nationalist approach? I remain optimistic that some pathway will be found. The second point I want to make is let's not forget what's going on among lower income and lower middle income countries. They had a very raw experience in witnessing the free for all market for PPEs, for test kits, for ventilators, for remdesivir and the like. They've just expressed the deep frustration that they cannot do the things they need to do to control this response because of the broken marketplace dominated by the high income countries. Second thing is Africa, much of this surge has come late. There were very effective lockdowns in March which delayed things, but they became untenable long-term. And now we're seeing a massive surge. Look at what's happening in South Africa. And there's a lot of anxiety around what lies ahead. UN Undersecretary General Mark Lowcock put forward a $10.3 billion 
uh, appeal, the largest in UN uh, history on emergency humanitarian and health response. Uh, they are seeing multiple crises right around the corner in low and middle income countries, extreme poverty, food scarcity, economic stress, health infrastructure, damaged, rebound epidemics as immunization programs collapse. So that's the context in which people are making the case now that we have to begin to think ahead and act on an urgent basis. And Gavi and Seppi have the institutional capacity to move this forward. But we do have a really serious political problem in trying to move forward in time. Thank you. I know Nikki is working night and day on trying to make it work. What do you think are the, the, the key challenges uh, right now and the biggest concerns? Sure. Well, you know, I think first, as you said, I would come back and say there's so much of this that relates to money and the financial situation. So um, as you started out by noting, SEPI estimated that it needed about $2 billion to basically to deliver vaccine candidates that were viable um, to the world. Part of that delivery of the vaccine candidates is the final R&D, and a lot of that is in clinical trials, right, which still need to be funded, and we still need to raise about $700 million or so to get that work done. In addition, as I think we've sort of alluded to, we've, we've talked about manufacturing, but you know, one of the strategies for CEPI and for COVAX is to be sure that there's manufacturing capacity distributed around the world, in part is a counter to some of the nationalism so that if any one country wants to lock down its doses, you've got capacity to manufacture other places. And also just because of the considerations about equity and access and ultimately capacity building. So all of that involves transfer of technology one way or another to manufacturing facilities around the world. And then you've got to be sure that you can get the regulatory agencies around the world together um, to, to be coordinated, to take good scientific looks at the vaccine candidates, but also the manufacturing processes to be sure that the vaccines are, are going to be safe before they're um, used in populations. And then finally, I would say, even after vaccines are authorized for use, um, different countries have really different abilities to monitor vaccine safety post-emergency authorization or post-licensure. And that's another place where global collaboration is going to be really essential. Let me turn uh, to Nicolaj. What do you think are the sort of critical uh, issues that have to be addressed? We are actually helping some of these potential manufacturers to actually uplift their, their, their skills and, and be ready to, to actually be producing uh, billions of doses of potential vaccines. And then there is something we haven't discussed so much, which is the distribution of the vaccine. I mean, how do we, how do we get it out there when it's, when it's available uh, and at the right price and, and so forth? And that's really difficult. We have seen now with the, um, with other immunization programs that they have really gone down, which is really bad for measles, polio, and how do we get that infrastructure up and running again and actually being put that into use for the potential uh, coronavirus vaccination? That's, I think, is the piece we also need to make sure we get, get ready urgently. Yes, thank you. So Kendall, turning to you now, are you, uh, optimistic or pessimistic about whether or not we'll be able to find a path 
through this current uh, scramble uh, towards uh, uh, vaccines uh, that will enable and support the kind of global collaboration we've been talking about and offer an alternative to vaccine nationalism. Then I'll ask the other panelists that same ending question um, before we conclude. I, I think the most hopeful thing that I could say, you know, in a world where diplomacy is not always an option um, is that I think the work that PATH is doing to boost production, that CEPI is doing to work on technology transfer agreements to distribute manufacturing capacity, that is diplomacy by other means. Um, that is one way to be effective in this environment. And um, it, COVAX will be a very interesting demonstration. Um, this is gonna be a test of nationalism versus collective efforts. And you know, I would put my money on COVAX just from a pure risk probability perspective. So Operation Warp Speed, one of the largest, most well-financed nation-based approaches, I think we have maybe six. And the research says, you know, once you're in human trials, probability of success is 17%, right? So if you've got six, then you've maybe got a 67% chance, whereas COVAX has close to 10 candidates, right? The chances of them having a successful candidate are good, probably better. And simple self-interested rationale is some vaccine for my most vulnerable population is better than no vaccine. And a lot of countries are going to get locked into agreements with no vaccine. And COVAX is going to look like a viable alternative. Um, so regardless of how many countries actually sign up initially, right now and how, what their budget is right now, I think over time, the, the logic will play in its favor. And I'm hopeful that we'll have a chance to build on these institutions going forward. Well, thank you. I've, I'm heartened that you were going to put your money on COVAX. It's too bad, though, that you don't have a couple billion to spare <laughs> towards that effort. But Nikki, are you optimistic or pessimistic? So. I'll tell you, for, for me, one of the most inspirational set of calls I've been on recently has been calls of countries who had expressions of interest to join COVAX. You know, in addition to the traditional Gavi countries, there were maybe 95 countries who got on a call for two days. And these are countries who are often adversaries in many other different areas of politics and competition. And, and all the other sorts of reasons that people can think of to fight one another. And there they were all on the phone together, thinking through and learning about how they might join forces to procure vaccine. And so that actually made me incredibly optimistic that we could find a way forward to this. They also seem to recognize, and I wanna maybe end with this point, that if we wanna do this, and we want to be successful, especially about getting doses early and enough doses so that we don't devolve into some global food fight about doses. Um, we have to get um, money to put down on raw materials and manufacturing and all of those other things. And that is a really, really urgent need. The amount of money needed is something like the amount that's four or five days of global GDP loss 
that we are facing now. So while it seems like a big number, in the big scheme of things, um, it's really not. Um, and I think if you spread that across all the countries that can afford to do it, um, it's not such a terrible problem. It's solvable. Good. Well, Nicola, pessimistic or optimistic? Well, you know, the last six months has proven that the world has a, a common vision, a common purpose to find a vaccine against COVID-19. We have seen unprecedented collaboration across a nation, scientific collaboration, political collaboration, and it's almost like a, like a moon landing that we're going to do together. So I am an optimist. I think we have proven that we can break down barriers uh, between us, and I think uh, with uh, the leadership together, we can uh, we can move this forward. And we have the infrastructure now with with Covax; it's there. So it's just a matter of getting it to work. Yeah. And Steve, we don't have much time, but do you want to provide any last uh, thoughts as we come to a close? Sure. Thank you very much. My feeling, I agree with with much of what's been said that. Gavi and Seppi have been impressive in this period. They have been fast, they've been visionary, they've taken risks, they've been bold in their thinking, and the numbers required look like big numbers, but they aren't. If we can get over this hurdle and secure the baseline that is required, they will be able to do great things and, and, and have enormous impacts. Now, we are heading into this next phase. It's gonna be a very, very difficult next couple of years. And we need to brace ourselves for that. We're going to need to be fairly rugged in the way we go about putting these plans forward and aware that it's going to be a turbulent and very difficult environment in many of these low income and lower middle income countries as we try to press ahead. But there's no choice. And I think um, all of you have shown just how much ingenuity and intellectual capacity and commitment has been brought to the table. And I thank all of our speakers who've been with us today, who really have been intellectual and uh, institutional leaders in this field. So thank you. Well, thank you all.